Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part 130 in the series Contending for the Faith. This is the morning service of Sunday the 12th of October entitled The Genesis Account Part 7, The Acuteness of Man's Fall. And the Bible reading is taken from Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 to 15. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. You open your Bibles this morning to the book of Genesis. As we continue in our series on the Genesis account, it has been uh, a few weeks now since we were here because with uh, so many other things that have been going on, and of course, as we have looked here over these past weeks, we've looked at a number of things, but we want to draw our attention this morning to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3. I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's precious and holy word today, beginning in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. The serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. The women When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. The eyes of them both were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. The Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? He said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? The man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. The Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Thou wilt put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Father, we thank you again, Lord, for your precious word. I thank you so much, Lord, just for the health and strength the privilege and opportunity to be here today with each one that is gathered here. I thank you for each one, Lord, that has 
come into this place together, to join our hearts together, to worship you, Lord, because you are so deserving. And Father, as we gather here today, we come to this time when we are about to look into your word. And Father, we simply pray once again, Lord, please undertake. Man needs no glory here today, but Father, each and every one of us stand in need of you, of your presence, of your word finding its rightful place in our hearts. For that we pray at this time, in Christ's name, amen, amen. As we continue in our series of, really it's starting with the whole thing, (coughs) contending for the faith, the fundamentals of that faith for which we are to contend. On the one hand today, there are too many things that we simply lay aside and don't stand up for. And on the other hand, there's too many things that we fight and bicker and divide over that really are not foundational to our faith. We look through God's Word. We've been trying to look at a number of those things. And today we embark upon the seventh sermon in our series on the Genesis account. How the Genesis account is fundamental and foundational to the very faith upon which we stand. Thus far, we have looked that it is here in the book of Genesis. We think many times of, yes, God's creation of man and woman and all of those things, but the book of Genesis is foundational for many other truths in Scripture. We have looked thus far at it is foundational for the authority of God's Word, for the very assertion of God's existence that He's even there, for the absoluteness of God's creation. He did it Himself without any outside help or any outside things. For the advancement of the human race, the accountability of mankind, the administration of home life. Today, we move on to another foundational truth that is founded and built upon in the book of Genesis, in the book of beginnings, and that is the acuteness of man's fall. When we looked at our last sermon from Genesis on the administration of home life and how that that is founded in the book of Genesis. We actually skipped over these first 15 verses here in chapter 3 and said we would come back to them, which we do today. We did see in the last part of this chapter, which we will touch on again uh, briefly when we get there, some of the consequences that man's fall in the garden had upon the roles of man and woman, and of course in the whole administration of home life as God meant it to be. One of the first hurdles that ever has to be crossed for anyone in becoming a Christian, and of course after we become a Christian in being a witness to others concerning salvation. One of the very first hurdles that must be crossed is that recognition for needing salvation in the first place. 
You see, when you stop and think about it, there really is absolutely no reason for a person to seek. And of course, we know that we must, if we seek with all of our heart, then we will find God. But why would somebody seek? We know that there's no reason to desire in any way salvation unless we first see that we need to be saved from something. What it is that we need to be saved from. And of course, as with many great doctrines of Scripture, because one of the things that is, it still enthuses me after all these years of reading and studying and trying to prepare sermons, is that, you know, you can't just pluck something out on its own because everything in God's Word just so intertwines and works together in such a, a balanced and harmonious way and with many of the great doctrines. This doctrine of the acuteness of man's fall in the Garden of Eden is one that is so intertwined with some of the things that we've already seen and, and others that are still to come that it's impossible to just separate it from those things. We've already stated clearly that if we do not truly believe the Word of God, if we don't believe in its absolute authority, it's not something we can just pick and choose and this is true and that's not true and we'll take this in our life and we'll leave that out. And I made a very clear statement that if you don't accept God's Word and its absolute authority, then it doesn't really matter what else you read or what else you study, what else that you're taught, because it has no foundation, no basis anyway. We must believe. We must accept God's existence and His creation of everything that is, including mankind, including us individually, if we're not to recognize our accountability to Him, how are we even going to begin to grasp that we've sinned against Him, that we have any need of salvation or anything to be saved from? How are we begin to comprehend this fall, this original sin in the garden, falling from that state of perfection when we saw in God's creation that when he finished, it was all very good. When we begin to look at this passage, we keep those things in mind. As we begin to draw our attention here, when we left off at the end of chapter 2, we saw that this man that God had created and this woman that had been created for him to complete him, to make him whole, they were together as one. They were there in the Garden of Eden and everything was very good and everything was harmonious and everything was literally as perfect as it could be. But then in chapter 3, verse 1, those first three words say, Now the serpent. 
Now, the serpent. You say, preacher, is that a real serpent? Is that a real snake? Well, first of all, I want you to realize that those three words are what is declaring the very entrance of Satan into this picture. From oneness and perfect harmony, not only with each other, but with God and with all of creation. Now, the serpent. Well, is that serpent one of God's creations as well that he just created on, on day six? And when he said that everything was good? Was he one of those everything that creepeth upon the earth that God created? Well, my answer would probably be yes and no. As we begin to look at Scripture and look through these verses, I don't believe there's any question. Now, the serpent. It is a real serpent. It is a real snake that we would more often call it today. But not just that serpent that God had created on day six when he created all of those creeping things, but a serpent that is being used, that is being possessed by Satan himself. You see, God doesn't really give us a description of the serpent's appearance before the fall. We do see that later in this chapter that as a result of the fall that he was cursed because of his involvement in it. And because of that, that he would spend the rest of his days crawling on his belly as we see them today. When we see a serpent today, it is the serpent that God created in the garden. It is a serpent that is entering here, but it is after the fall of man, crawling upon his belly. We find that now the serpent that is entering here we didn't know his appearance would have been different because this is before sin entered in, before the curse was placed upon him. But he was a real serpent. But there should be absolutely no doubt that just as sure as he was a real serpent or snake that we would call it before the, sinful, the curse of sin was placed upon him, it is Satan himself working through this serpent. Now, we've already established some time back who Satan is. We established that very early in this series when we did a number of sermons on the truth about Satan. Now, if you missed that, you can go back and you can listen to it online. If you let me know, I'll be happy to give you the printed version, but you're going to have a much clearer understanding of what's taking place here in Genesis when you tie it in with who Satan is that we are dealing with that makes his entrance into this world here in chapter 3 and verse 1 and into our lives. You see, we looked at a lot of things about this one called Satan. His person, his position, his purpose, his power, his providence, and our protection against him. Those truths are very important. They're very important to understand our enemy 
for us to stand against him, which he is there day by day, and it's important for a clear understanding of what's taking place here. With those truths about Satan in mind, I want us to recognize that, firstly, we see here in this passage that God identifies, God personally identifies Satan as the serpent in the garden. He even calls him in a couple of places that old serpent. He leaves no doubt as to his identity. You look first of all in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we find that the same serpent, this now serpent that is entering here in chapter 3 verse 1, this serpent who is clearly Satan, we see that same serpent who is Satan in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we see him transforming himself into an angel of light. We see him also transforming his ministers into ministers of righteousness. Notice what the Bible says about him here. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 begins, Would to God, this is Paul writing to the church at Corinth, you could bear with me a little in my folly and indeed bear with me, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now he's very proud of them. He's very happy to them. But notice what he says in verse 3. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, we have not preached. Or if we receive another spirit that ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Now he has a fear over these that he cares for. And his fear is that that serpent that beguiled Eve in the garden is going to somehow beguile, which simply means to deceive, by the way, those within this church. And he goes down and he discusses a number of things, but jump down with me for the sake of time to verse 13 where he explains who that serpent is. He says, for such these that would do that are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light, and therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. The fear for the church of Corinth was that that serpent that beguiled Eve would beguile them. And those that were doing that, he makes very clear, is Satan himself, transforming himself into an angel of light, transforming his ministers into ministers of righteousness. Righteousness. 
Notice with me also if you turn to the book of Revelation chapter 12, that same serpent who is state Satan, who being in a state of war ever since the fall that we're reading about here in Genesis chapter 3, who really since Satan's fall, which we'll talk about when that took place, when he was cast out of heaven along with a third of the angelic host, we find that that same Satan that was cast out of heaven with a third of that host is the same Satan that was the serpent in the garden, the old serpent, and the same one that halfway through the seven years of tribulation will be denied even access to God where now he is an accuser of the brethren and where he will be barred from heaven forever. Revelation chapter 12, notice what he says beginning in verse 5. He says, and she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne, of course, Jesus Christ. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God, and they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score years, the nation of Israel fleeing. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down which accused them before our God day and night. God leaves us in no doubt who the old serpent is. Now, this Satan that is entering here in Genesis chapter 3 is the same Satan that, yes, that has been at war with God all of these years, but is being cast down, the same one that halfway through the tribulation will no longer have access to accuse the brethren anymore. One of the passages I'd like to read to you from Revelation chapter 20. You see, the same serpent, the same serpent who is Satan, the same serpent that is entering here in Genesis chapter 3 is the same serpent, the same Satan that will be bound and cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years during Christ's millennial reign upon this earth. And that will be followed by his ultimate being cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where he will remain forever and ever. In Revelation chapter 20, the Word of God says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, 
having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. I saw thrones and they set upon them and judgment was given unto them and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image now they had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to, again, deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle the number of whom is at the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and could pass the camp of the saints about the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. You see, in all of these passages, God himself declares that old serpent to be Satan. As we look into Genesis chapter 3, we find that it is the first place that we see that serpent. It is the first place that we see Satan entering on to the scene. Identified for us clearly here in Scripture, he comes onto the scene in the garden, and this, my friends, now the serpent. This is his first and only appearance before the fall of man in the garden. Where did he come from? Now the serpent. Here, he enters into, this, into, the, into the garden scene with everything in perfection, harmonious. Now the serpent. Well, you can prefer back, refer back to that previous study, but we established there from Scripture that this one was at one time a cherub, an angelic being, one of the heavenly hosts himself. He fell because of pride, and he was cast out of heaven when he revolted against God because of that pride. Now, there's a debate, as with many things amongst Bible scholars, as to exactly when that 
took place. But as we study and put all the things together, as we look at the whole Genesis account concerning creation, as we see God creating the heavens and the earth, his creating everything that exists, Satan was a created being. There is no question about that. Matter of fact, he was created perfect like everything else that God created. He was part of that everything that was very good on day six. And of course, many of the scriptures that we looked at teach us specifically about Satan and his fall. We look in his eye. We look in Ezekiel. And I would say that contrary to many people think that somehow this all took place between Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 and Genesis chapter 2 verse 2 when they try to fit the gap theory in there. But may I say to you that just doesn't jive with all these other things because everything couldn't have been perfect. Everything couldn't have been very good if that fall had already taken place before God even created things upon this earth. I would simply say to you that the only thing, the only way that I can see the fall of Satan being in harmony with the rest of the scriptures is that somewhere after Genesis chapter 1 verse 31 on day 6 of creation and here his entering in chapter 3 and verse 1 Somewhere he fell in the garden. We don't know how much time has passed here since God created and when the serpent entered in. How long did Adam and Eve live in the garden in that perfect state of harmony? We don't know. The Bible nowhere tells us that it was a week or a month or a year or a thousand years even. God doesn't know. Remember, before the fall, there was no death. There was no decay. Everything was just as perfect the second day and the third day. Now things deteriorate because of the curse. Before the curse, time didn't mean anything. You've heard me say before, the only reason we worry about time is because we've only got so much of it. We've only got so much today to get all the things done that we need to get done today. We've only got so much this week. We've only got so much in a lifetime because it comes to an end. We all have a certain amount of it, but before Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, that was not the case. We find that now the serpent, he enters the scene and everything changes. Now the serpent, he says, was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. What does it mean to be subtle? Well, Sometimes it can be used in a positive sense, but more times than not, as here, it's used in a negative sense, meaning cunning, meaning crafty, meaning deceitful. Now, the serpent, as he enters the scene, the scriptures tell us very clearly that he's more cunning and crafty and sneaky and deceitful than anything else that God had created out there. Satan, a fallen angel, a supernatural spirit, takes possession 
of a serpent's body in its pre-fall state. And he, being more subtle and cunning and deceitful than any of the rest of God's creation, appears here in the Garden of Eden. The entrance of Satan. We find that as we continue to read in that verse, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And what's the first thing he does? He said unto the woman. We have the entrance of Satan followed immediately by the enticement of the woman. Oh, he's going to entice her all right. Why did Satan approach the woman? instead of the man, because she was more beautiful, right? <laughs> Remember when, when Adam first saw Eve and God presented her to her, it was like, wow, <laughs> what have you given me here, God? <clears throat> God doesn't tell us why. Why doesn't he just go directly to the man? Is this maybe part of, let's see, he was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said, him, in all of his subtlety, said to the woman. They certainly seem to be tied together. Although God doesn't tell us specifically, as we look through Scripture, we try to see some light, we might say, well, maybe it was because that she was the weaker of the vessels. The Bible teaches us that. She actually was, came, came out of man, Maybe it was because that, typically, not always, we can't stereotype, but she's usually softer, more emotional, more tender than the man. Maybe because he thought that because of her gentleness, that she would be more easily influenced. Maybe, maybe. I kind of like this. Maybe it's because he knew that there was absolutely nothing else in all the world that would have a chance to have the influence that needed to be on the man than that woman. <laughs> Maybe in his cunningness, he chose her because he knew she would have a much greater chance of being able to get the man to do something than Satan himself would have. One thing is certain we know from Scripture also is that he caught her when she was alone. He caught her when Adam wasn't about, and Adam was her protector. She was in a much greater position to be tempted, to be seduced because of her being alone. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said unto the woman... What did he say? Yea, hath God said ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? He begins his enticement, interestingly, with a question. He doesn't begin. This is the first words that he's spoken. He doesn't make any kind of a statement about anything. He asked the woman a simple question to get her opinion. That seems hardless, harmless enough. 
Sorry, ladies. Most ladies like to give their opinions, don't they? <laughs> Thank God. Amen. Well, Satan probably knew that. Yay. Hath God said, has, has God said this? You know, it'd be wise to remember probably that when Satan tempted Jesus himself, when he was taken in the wilderness after his 40 days of fasting, when Satan tempted him, in all three instances, Jesus' reply to Satan was, it is written. Satan's first question to the woman, has God said? Well, we know that even Jesus, he defeated Satan with what God said. God said this. Well, I can just kind of almost hear Satan, I mean, here he is, beautiful, cunning, crafty, trying to deceive this woman. And it carries the idea, has God indeed said, has, has God really said this? Is it really true that, that God said to you that you shouldn't eat of every tree of the garden? You see, a question can be phrased in a lot of different ways. And with just the right little inflections, you can get an amazing message across without changing the words a bit. This was the most cunning, deceitful beast in God's creation. He goes to ask this woman's opinion. Has God said? <laughs> well, I could imagine that the words to follow are going to be filled with all kind of insinuation to make you wonder, has God said? And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. He begins by telling how gracious and generous that God has been to them. He's given them permission. Has God said that you can't eat of all the trees? Well, God said that we can eat of every tree out there, of all that he's given us, but with only one exception, the fruit of the one tree in the midst of the garden. But I wonder, is there anything you noticed about that statement? God hath said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. I'll tell you what, <laughs> God's words to Adam's are recorded clearly to us in Scripture, and God didn't say anything to Adam about not touching it. <laughs> God simply told him that he couldn't eat it. Now, was that Eve's mistake in saying that God had said something that he hadn't said? Or remember, when God told Adam that, Eve hadn't been created yet. So Adam was the one responsible to pass the message on to Eve. Did he get it wrong? Did he add something to it when he told it to Eve? Maybe he was trying to protect her. Maybe he was trying to keep her from the danger, but 
The reality is, is that we know that what God said was changed. And I have no doubt that Satan noticed that. <laughs> and I have no doubt that he saw a little wedge, a little place to get in there. When we say God said, when we say it is written, we need to be careful. We need to be right that we're not adding to or taking away from what God himself has said. The next two verses, and the serpent said unto the woman, he shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. He's getting bolder. Maybe he was emboldened because Eve was being so nice and so sweet and so open to him. Maybe he was emboldened even more because... <laughs> She's saying God said things that he didn't say. But we know one thing again for certain here. <laughs> the first statement, you see, the first words that he spoke to the woman was a deceptive question. That angel of light. Oh. But the first statement that he makes is a bold-faced lie. I mean, just an out and out lie. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. First, he just asked her a simple question and get her opinion. And then when he gets his opening, ye shall not surely die. You see, that helps us to understand what Jesus was talking about when he was talking to the Pharisees. And John recorded these words in John chapter 8, verse 44. Jesus said, ye are of your father the devil, speaking to the Pharisees, and the lust of your father ye will do. Notice what he says next. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Jesus said that he was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. What beginning? The beginning that we're reading about right here in Genesis chapter 3. When he came onto the scene, Satan, first of all, in his first contact with the human race, Jesus said he was a murderer and a liar. You see, it was through this deceptive lie that he tells right here to Eve in the garden. The very first statement that Satan ever made on this earth, he leads them down the path to certain death. Oh, he's murdering them physically and spiritually. Ye shall not surely die. When all along what he's wanting is for them to die. He's wanting to kill them, destroy them. He knows that God is right. But he's deceiving the woman and he's telling her a bold-faced lie. He's promising something good. 
He's promising great benefits. Oh, you're not going to die? God knows that when you eat of that fruit, your eyes are going to be open and you're going to be as God's yourself. You're going to know good and evil. All these great, wonderful benefits are what really is going to come to you. Verse 6, and when the woman saw that the tree was what? Good. She saw it as good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes. A tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat. Satan's first statement to mankind was an out and out bold-faced lie meant to kill. We find that Eve simply believed his lie. Satan's lie, even though it was totally contrary to what God had said. She must have concluded somehow that she had got it wrong, that she had misunderstood God. I mean, God clearly said this. But Satan told her otherwise. Eve was not rebelling against God. Eve was not intentionally disobeying God. Eve actually thought she was doing the right thing. She, when she saw this, she saw that this tree was good, that it was pleasant, that it was desirable. She was genuinely deceived. We need to remember that. Eve was deceived. What did we read there? We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 earlier when we were looking at that comparison of the serpent and Satan being one and the same. There in verse 3, when he began to tell them of his fear, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent, what? Beguiled Eve through his subtlety, through his cunningness, through his craftiness. He deceived Eve. God in the New Testament tells us that Eve was deceived. She didn't know that what she was doing was wrong. She actually was completely deceived. The word beguiled there means exactly the same thing. But of course, with man, it was totally different. And gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. With Adam, it was a direct transgression against God. Eve was utterly and completely deceived, but Adam knowingly chose to disobey God, to go contrary to what God had said. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. One of the consequences of that, and the Bible makes it clear, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Why? Because she's less clever, because she's less capable, because she's not able? No, he says, hmm, why? And I not suffer teach authority to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, 
And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Oh, order of God, and all relates back to this. You see, both were in the transgression. One was deceived, the other was not. It was sin in both cases. Both were in the transgression. Eve was enticed through deception. Adam made the worst error possible in all of the world. You have the entrance of Satan, the enticement of the woman, the error of the man. The woman was deceived. The man just out and out chose to do wrong. He committed the worst evil that man could ever do. He purposely chose to sin against God, to disobey God. One of those earlier readings also makes it clear that Satan is still very much about his work today. There in chapter 12, verse 9, when we talked about him being cast out of heaven, not to be able to accuse the brethren anymore, and the great dragon, it said in verse 9, was cast out that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. The same thing, he came on the scene. He deceived the woman. The woman went to the man. The man chose to sin. You see, rest assured, Satan is very good, listen to me, at making sin look good, of making it look pleasant, of making it look desirable. That's what he's done from the beginning. That's why we're in the mess we're in. And the Bible says he's still today deceiving the whole world. Even come the end of the world, when God is dealing directly with him, he's still deceiving the whole world. That's who he is. That's who's coming on the scene here. Whether he entices you by completely deceiving you into thinking that you're doing something that's right when it's wrong, like he did Eve, or whether he just gets you to out and out disobey God's word when you know better, like Adam. Maybe, as Adam, we just don't consider the consequences of such a grave error. The end result is the same. You see, God's prohibition brought a distinct consequence if it was disobeyed. He did not differentiate in any way as to why that sin was being committed, whether you knew it or whether you didn't, whether you were deceived or whether you just chose to. He said back in chapter 2, verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. The woman was enticed. She was totally deceived into doing what she did without even realizing that she was doing it. The man knew what he should and shouldn't do but he chose anyway. 
the consequence was the same for both. The consequence was death for eating of that tree. Folks, it hasn't changed. Satan is still the same liar and murderer that he was here in the Garden of Eden. Romans 6.23 could not say it clear, for the wages of sin is death. God hasn't changed his mind. God isn't dealing any different. The wages of sin is death. That was what came into the garden. As we think on these things today, I want on the one hand, as we recognize that everything that God did, he did right, he did it perfect. But when Satan came on the scene, everything changed. Satan came on the scene with his lies, with his deception, with the intent to kill. God hasn't changed his mind. The wages of sin is death. But just as surely, Satan hasn't changed his either. We'll see as we look further into these verses just how acute this fall was just how far-reaching, how serious that it was. But I want to leave you realizing this morning, you've got an enemy. But Romans 6, 23 doesn't stop with, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What God created was perfect and what he meant it to be, and it was very good. Satan came on the scene. Through his lies and deception, he made a mess of it. But we made that choice. We'll see later that we made that choice through Adam, yes. But what we want to realize is that God has a gift. Just as Satan has caught us in his trap of death that we all deserve because of sin, God has given us this wonderful gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. We can have that and we can know that. And guess what? One of the things we looked at in the Bible study time this morning at 10 o'clock, we're talking about the Psalm of David. One of the things that just made him just praise God with all of his heart, one of those attributes was when he looked at what God had promised for the future. He knew that all these kings and all these enemies, one day they'd bow down to God for who he was. We know the end of the story. It will once again be returned to the glory that God made it in. You and I will be returned to that glory as well. No sin. No more the consequences of sin. We need to recognize that just as each and every one of us had to come to realize our need for salvation because of sin that began there when Satan entered on the scene. That's the same thing that every human being needs to know today. Today, rest assured and praise God that just as Satan, his intent, just as it was with them, was to destroy and to kill you, God's intent through his son was to give you life everlasting, that you might have life and that you might have it more what? Abundantly.
That's what you've got in him today. Father, thank you so much, Lord. Lord, as we are reminded that, yes, when Satan came on the scene, he came with the intention, Lord, to destroy us, came with his deception and his lies. Father, you'd pre-warned us just as he pre-warned us today. Help us, Lord, to be on guard against the enemy. Help us to rejoice and know that just as man fell there in the garden, you've given us the means to be restored through Jesus Christ. Help us to grasp and understand the acuteness, the far-reaching consequences of what took place there in Genesis chapter 3. But help us to rest and rejoice and praise you today for what took place at Calvary, what took place in our hearts we put our faith and trust in the risen Savior. Of course, in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. <music>